in three, two, one. My name is Clay Fraser, Principal Senior Ecologist and co-owner of Native Range Ecological, and this is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I know you guys have heard this over and over and over again, but listen, Pheasant Fest was a really, really good time. And amongst meeting celebrities and really exciting people and extravagant people and some people that actually knew Paul Adama from one of our first episodes, uh, and I, Jimmy. His next door neighbor. Shout out to Jimmy. My goodness. That guy, he was so excited. He'd, he'd listen to our podcast, watch all of our YouTube um, it was an incredible time. I was walking around one day, and I met Clay and Dan of Native Range Ecological. And um, we just start. I just started chatting with them. It looked like they were kind of within our uh, within our range of sphere. And we talked about beavers, and uh, oh man, we talked about we talked about monarchs. We talked about planting and burning. And I remember thinking. Normally, I feel like the person who knows more when I'm talking about prairie, and that is not the case right now. <laughs> These guys know a lot what they're talking about, and we have the privilege, as you heard, to have Clay, one of the founders of uh, Native Range Ecological, on our podcast. Clay, thanks so much for joining I'm us. I'm really happy to be here, guys. This is awesome. So, yeah. Thanks for burning the midnight oil for us. <laughs> <laughs> we want... We, we got to give this man a character shout out because I told, so we're in Wisconsin. We, we've been traveling all day and doing a lot of other things, but I told him originally five and then I called him and said, I'm so sorry. It's going to be more like six 30. Uh, and then it was seven 15 and then seven 26. I think we finally pulled in at like seven 32 and he waited patiently. He smiled when we got here. <laughs> Look, guys, I do not like being being late, and so two and a half hours. And and <laughs> I had time for an extra beer, so <laughs> oh, we're good. It was awesome. But uh, well, we appreciate you for sure giving us a giving us a time of day. Still, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, guys, look, it's like it's like eight forty five at night. Who knows what's going to come out of our mouth? Um, but well, it's been a long day for you guys. This is your second podcast, right? So, yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, we got to. Hey, when you're up, when you're, you're in nailing. Rome, right? <laughs> oh yeah, we're in Wisconsin. Wisconsin is so cool. I've only been here one other time, but I wasn't like looking at the uh, topographical map of Wisconsin. You start looking at it, where the glaciers were, where they weren't. You know, and, yeah. and what we heard earlier today with one of our podcasts is that uh, erode or all of this was caused by erosion, not explosion. Eruption. Right. Right. Eruption. Thank you. It's erosion, a diverse state, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, I have family from Wisconsin, so I've been coming to Wisconsin. Actually, it's pretty much the same area we were in today for uh, my whole life. And so it's just it's cool to be back here. But uh, uh, Clay and I were talking. We have, like, a similar background of travel for our lives <laughs> both born in des moines then moved to uh northern illinois and then now he's uh, ends up in uh wisconsin which i actually went to college in wisconsin for a little while and then uh um i ended up back in iowa and yeah. clay st- sticking around here in yeah wisconsin. actually i did bounce around a little bit between des moines and, and illinois i kind of i mean my, my my dad was a project uh a mechanical engineer 
Okay, I yeah, yeah. Up and every few years we moved around. We were in Michigan, we were in Tennessee, wow, a couple different places in that Wisconsin really before cool. we went back to Illinois, right? So, so yeah, it was like every. Well, I was one of those kids that just moved every three years and. I figured it out. I right, made friends right. wherever I went, you know? Yeah. It, was, it was okay for me. Do you feel like that's paid off for you in, you know, running your own business now? Uh, just I the, do. those skills from yeah, have to adapt I, so I do, quick? Kent. I think that, you know, it's just kind of you adapt, you know, and you just you, you kind of meld in your environment, sure. right? So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's good. So, some you know, I used to be a teacher, and if you listen to the podcast, you know I've said that a bajillion times now, but, but – uh, one of the things you know you talk about when you have students that have to move around like that it's always talked in the terms of man that's a hardship for that kid you know they don't get to set down roots they you know everything's an upheaval all the time for them but there's a good example make make lemonade you know when life gives you lemons make that lemonade because uh you know you can look at you can look at every circumstance and find some kind of opportunity and and it makes for a unique accent too, you know. <laughs> in Midwest, absolutely. You ever have Midwest, people like your accent? Where are you yeah. from? Well, <laughs> yeah, because like the time I spent in Tennessee, and then I went to school at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, which is basically like Kentucky. Illinois is <laughs> yeah. a long yeah. state. Yeah, yeah. It's, and Southern, it's way Southern down there. Illinois is nothing like it's the rest of yeah, Illinois. It's basically the South. Absolutely. Man. So I mean, I definitely the y'alls come out once in a while for me. <laughs> Good. You, you do not have a Wisconsin accent though. <laughs> no, no, I no. So are you a are you a Packer and Beager fan? You know, I became a Packer fan in college because it was the mid '90s. It was yep. the Far Rivera. Oh right? yeah, yeah. And I could and the Bears were just oh, yeah. garbage, and I couldn't. I just couldn't do it anymore. You know, yep. I was looking for yep. something. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I don't blame you at all. So yeah, I am a bear. I am a hopeless Bears fan. I wish I was like a Chiefs fan. Oh or something. my goodness! Ken has told us before. He's like, I wish I could be a Patriots fan, yeah, but right. I yeah. just can't get myself to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> dude. He j- well, if, you know, fandom. You don't really get to choose that much. Yeah, it no, just kind of happens to you. My Illinois buddies still give me a lot of grief over it, you know. <laughs> but uh, I was a Packer fan before I moved to Wisconsin. Honestly, yeah. well, so, hey, that works yeah. out then. Yeah, they they love their Packers up here in uh, Wisconsin, and we'll uh, find out in the next couple of years if you're fair weathered oh, or not. Yeah, sure. that's like <laughs> going to be the trials. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's, they'll probably luck out, and love will end up being a stud, and and uh, it could happen. It could happen for sure. But that's not why we're here tonight. No, we're, not we're a sports podcast. We have to say too often that we're not a sports podcast. Um, so, so like I was saying. We were at Pheasant Fest. I'm talking to Dan and Clay, and they just sound like experts. Clay, what experience do you have? Why do you sound like an expert? Because, my goodness, guys, if you talk, he does. He sounds like an expert. Oh, and man. I, you guys will see I, Maybe this. a lot of it's just the sales pitch, right? But, I mean. <laughs> All bravado. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just a lot of passion for it. You know, you can relate to it, Nicholas. Um, you come up in this stuff, and you really get into it, and you just mm-hmm. you go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, and it's not anything you learn in school. You you self teach yourself these things, and you read, and you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Yeah, and that's the secret. I think I, I was fortunate. Um, you know, my story was that I finished school in the mid '90s. I turned wrenches for a couple of years to pay my loans off in in Rockford. Oh actually, yeah, Rockford yeah. College. Did you ever and go I, to Beef Roos? Oh, absolutely. The cheesy fries. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
And the, uh, the old ones, too, like on the, yeah. the west shady side of town, too, right? <laughs> um, I think pretty much all of Rockford is shady these days. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that argument could be made. That's because they're killing all their prairie. Did you ever yeah. gallop through their prairie? I did. Okay. I, I did. I have never done that either. I just, just a question. Yeah, yeah. Look like you might be galloping through prairie. No, he but, said he uh, did. He did Oh, go you did gallop through the prairie. I did. I galloped. Oh, wow. I trotted. I even crawled on my hands and knees a couple of times. So. <laughs> Just rolling yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when we first got here, Nicholas must not have been paying attention or something. I don't know. It could be just because it's the end of the day. But uh, Clay has some very personal connection with the Bell Bowl Prairie there in uh, Rockford. And I, I do want to give a shout-out to Nick. He did an excellent job with his episode. We've gotten uh, multiple Really good feedback, messages from listeners. Um, just nice job covering that, Nick. Thanks. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, Clay, though you you were part of it. Like you yeah. you were in that community. You did some field work out there. Yeah, I did. I mean, so and it just it, it kind of brought it to the surface last night because I was telling you guys earlier before we before we started here that I was driving back from a meeting in Milwaukee last night and I was listening to Nick Plux's podcast. They just set up on, on Bell Bowl, and he researched it really well, and he framed it up really nicely, but I was like, holy cow. I saw the title, and I had to listen to this thing. Because yeah. See yeah. if we are phonies or not. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> These guys know what they're talking about. What's going on here, right? But, uh, yeah, in school, we got out there a couple times on field trips and got to do some monitoring on the plants, and it, 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 was, it was a really, really historical native remnant plant community in northern Illinois, and, of course... You know, it was destined to be developed, right? Yeah. It, it was owned by Rockford Airport for a long time to the next yep. point. Uh, you know, yep. but it, it, it's sad to see it go, but, yeah. you know, I like the way you balanced it last yeah. night in the sense that how much impact does it really have to the resource to yeah. lose a, a patch remnant like that compared to what we've already lost. Yeah, right? yeah. It's not more sad than the other 22 million acres we right. no longer have. But so so you're in Rockford, you're, you're, you're turning wrenches, and, and then where do you go from there? I went to Peace Corps from there. I spent wow. I spent two years in West Africa as a Peace Corps volunteer in Ghana, and at the at that point in my life, you know, I was kind of like, I'm either going to be, I'm going to go into the military, I'm going to travel Europe with the cash I have, or I'm going to do a Peace Corps. I had made my mind up, and huh. it was kind of a parallel track. And the Peace Corps thing hit. They gave me an assignment. I jumped. I looked at the globe to figure out where Ghana, West Africa was. Yeah. <laughs> Right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. And then I jumped on a plane a few months later. Did you I have spent, to pay for that? I don't know how that no, works. No, Do they pay you? They pay you. Well, I mean, at the end of your service, you get a couple of thousand bucks. <laughs> yeah. So basically, just, you're just out there and pay your food. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. That's not always a safe situation either for those workers. I So with my job, I get to listen to a lot of podcasts. And I listen to, uh, it was like a I Shouldn't Be Alive type of podcast. Mm-hmm. Or I can't remember the name of it. But uh, uh this it was about a peace corps uh worker she and her co-worker went to just do a routine uh check on some uh students that they were kind of you know helping out and boom car gets hijacked and then she's she and her colleague are uh in the desert for like a month and uh navy seals had to come in and save them 
It happens. I think it's a really, really rare occasion. I think that's what makes headlines. And, and right? Ghana's pretty safe, right? I yeah, mean, as far it, as Ghana is a former British colony, really stable government. Um, now, granted, I did see some conflict because I opted to, to live in a really rural part of the country. Hmm. Okay, I was in a, I was in kind of a, you know, an area I had no running water, electricity for a couple of years where I lived, and that's what I wanted at that point in my life. It was fine, but there hmm. were, there were local chieftaincy disputes that occurred once in a while and things got out of hand sure i actually did end up getting (laughs) ironically and this is really rare i did get evacuated out of the first village that i was located into oh no yeah yeah you're like we met a guy who was like oh man getting bit by spiders in australia really rare and he's from australia he's like well i've been bitten like 25 times you're like it's super rare it happened to me and all of my colleagues and everyone else i know (laughs) yeah yeah it's an anomaly though honestly i think i i you know most most peace corps volunteers have really stable almost boring experiences to be honest with you but um, it's what you make of it. You know, I, I definitely wanted to be in a rural area, but what I was working on was agroforestry extension. Oh, so that's my cool. job was to just kind of ride around and work with different villagers on really basic soil and water oh, conservation cool. practices. And we ran, we ran some tree nurseries and just taught people really rudimentary practices on, on yeah. land management. So. Is that pretty neat learning those species over there? It was. It was amazing. Oh. I mean, it was, a, it was a formative experience for me. Relatively sure. late in life, you know, because I was I was kind of in my late twenties. I was yeah. I was a non a non trad guy. Right. Most of those kids are right out of school. Right. Um, most I mean, Peace Corps generally takes people with college degrees, and um, it was interesting for me. But you know, I, I I did a lot of good stuff over there. I had a lot of yeah. fun, and then yeah. I finished my service. I bummed around Europe for a few months until the cash ran out. Nice. <laughs> I flew home and got married. Wow. To my college sweetheart, almost immediately. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Valerie and I were together in college for a little while, and then we separated, and we got back together just before I went overseas. She was finishing her externships in optometry school, and and she came over a couple times to visit, did some eye clinics, and it was amazing. And I flew back home, and we got married. We, We met back in Miami. Drove down to Key West, got married on the beach, and that was 20 years ago. My goodness. Yeah. That is inspiring. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to get married, just join the Peace Corps. There you go. And <laughs> go to Africa. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Plant trees. Yeah. <laughs> so were there any species there, like from a grass standpoint, that overlap here in the United States? I honestly have no idea. Yeah, you know, like I actually had my very first experience with, with prescribed grassland fire in okay. West Africa. And I, something just, a, 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 you know, a flip switched sure. in my mind. And I realized they didn't really understand the biology or the botany of what they were doing. They understood the results of it and sure. what it did to uh. the landscape and how it regenerated grasslands and how it impacted wildlife habitat. But it wasn't until several years later when I was working for Wisconsin DNR as a, as a grasslands biologist that I realized this is where it's at for me, right? Mm. Grassland ecology, understanding how to manage these things. It's fun to burn, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's great fun. It's exciting. But what it does to the resource is oh, just yeah. really tremendous yeah. and impactful. Well, yeah. So in northern South Africa, I think that's where this, those are the like savannas you think about when you're thinking about Africa and the giant red sun and, and stuff like that. Um, 
Are there like, because in Iowa, the prairies, you know, they went on for miles and miles, hill over hill over hill, uh, as far as your eye could see. I know that you weren't necessarily there, but do you know, like, are those savannas, why isn't there agriculture currently there instead of... In South Africa? I believe I believe it's in northern South Africa, or at least I have a friend who's from there, and they talk about those like savannas. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak much to that. I I didn't get to travel that far south on the continent. You have to realize how large the African continent is. It's unbelievably large. Um, Like three and a half United States of America fit inside the African continent, right? What about what about where you were there in West Africa? I was in a I was in a country the size of Indiana. With forty-five million people in it, wow! Right, that's so. A, yeah. yeah, it's not a lot of in, not in, a lot in, of country. Right, I mean, in, in urban areas, it's really compacted. Most developing countries are that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but the plains of South Africa, Nicholas, to your point, I mean, I don't. I probably don't know much more than you do about yeah. it. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, wildlife tourism that goes on in those places, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of land ownership issues too. With indigenous oh, yeah. people versus yeah. Europeans. Yeah. yeah, And I knew that that, that was a big thing. Um, I've always just wondered that because here in the United States where there were savannas, where there were prairies, were great farmland. So I was curious. But so do you join the DNR immediately afterwards? Yeah, I mean, well, what really happened, to be honest with you, is I got home from Peace Corps and had a what, what we generally call reverse culture shock mm-hmm. from coming back into the States because I... I hadn't been in the country in almost three years, and uh, I went to the grocery store, and it blew my mind, and I kind of came home and curled up in the ball in, the, in our apartment. My wife and I were sharing and started shaking. Oh, and, man. Uh, <laughs> well, not, you know, not literally, but more figuratively. <laughs> okay, I was thinking you literal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like just, you know, you come back home, and you're, you're inundated suddenly, and just sure. c- consumerism and... And everything that's available, yeah. right? And it kind of freaks you out for a while. So my wife gave me about a month of that, and then she said, "Get your ass out and get a job." Right? <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, enough with nice. the silliness. Yeah, yeah. Put your man pants on and go get a job, right? <laughs> yeah. And so I applied, and and um, I was really fortunate to work for a guy uh, inside DNR. Can I name drop? Can I do that? Yeah. Sure. Guy Brian Benzo, inside DNR. Wildlife biologist that was he put thirty plus years in. Wow. Retired now, of course, but that's cool. Um, just died in the wool biologist, absolute you know diehard land manager, and I learned a lot from him in the, in the short time I worked. I was able to work for him, and that's awesome. Um, he, he really he was one of those formative people in in my career for me that really uh, set the stage for what I wanted to do, mm. inspired me, and then yeah. also helped lead me into my position with pheasants forever yeah uh, were, were you were you passionate about prairie before that or that was just kind of the job that seemed kind of interesting and I, I really didn't know that much i mean as an as a wildlife biologist guy that was my undergraduate degree wildlife ecology and botany i studied these things but i really i didn't really uh know much about them right i yeah, wasn't invested yeah. in them i hadn't really done a lot of boots in the ground hands-on work with those sure with those community types yeah. Until I work for DNR. And and that, and, yeah. I want to say, I, I keep saying prairie, but you're in Wisconsin, so there is a lot of forestry as well. Um, it's just I'm used to Iowa where if you're working with 
uh, native, you know, ecological um, plants. We're in a prairie be. part of the state right now, though, right? Historically around Madison, I mean, it's lake country, but uh, there's also, this would have been a lot of grassland in this part of the state. We're in a really unique of part right? of it from an ecological landscape standpoint because it's kind of a transition zone between gra- open grasslands, savanna, and then northern Wisconsin is mm. mostly, you know, woodland, forested habitat yeah. Yeah. And, and landscape. So it's really a unique part of the world, honestly. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. Uh, you can drive two or three hours north and you're into some beautiful north timber and grouse habitat. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and, 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 and waterfall and the big habitat. Lakes. Yeah. You can go west and you got the Mississippi River. Yep. The driftless area of Wisconsin is yep. just absolutely incredible. Yeah, we were just there and it was it was really yeah. cool. Yeah. Beautiful. Yep. Yeah. And so where we are right now between Madison and, and going further east into the Milwaukee area, it was grassland and woodland mix, which was kind of savannah esque type yeah. ecological landscape. Absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. Any idea how much original prairie would have been here? You know, before before a settlement, how much of the state would have been prairie compared to now? Any idea on that? Millions of acres, <laughs> you know. Oh, really? So I quite mean, a bit. I just like Illinois. Yeah. Except it wasn't, you know, it, Illinois is more of a this flat, loam prairie type mm-hmm. landscape, and we've got a little bit of topography, and so again. Um, it was relatively easy to cut the trees here and, sure. and create agricultural land yeah. in the southern tier. But you drive into what in, in Wisconsin we call that, that tension zone in central Wisconsin where you mm-hmm. go from flat grassland and prairie and lake country into northern forest. Mm-hmm. And that transition is really remarkable, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as far as, Kent, as far as how many acres were there, I mean, it was all... You know, pristine. Yeah, several, several million at least. Yeah. 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 So that's interesting. So absolutely. quite a bit. And then is most of that prairie gone today or is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. I mean, similar to Iowa. It's just all like been, Illinois, all been we're talking about developed. remnants. Yeah. We're talking about Iowa. I mean, sure. anywhere that can could be plowed under, it was. And people honestly think that's a vestige of the past. Remnant prairies are still plowed under all the time right now in the Dakotas yeah. and Western states. To create yeah, that's true. That's true. We have to create federal programs to disincentivize people to do that. Right now, now. now, one interesting thing is, you know, Wisconsin is the dairy land, so a lot of the ag ground is pasture that's been seeded into cool season grasses, probably. However, a lot of times, remnant prairies can be found and re, you know, revitalized and and uh, restored. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't even say restored because restored prairie is a different thing, but can be basically brought back up yeah. uh, because have, of the seed bank. Absolutely. So is there a lot of that in Wisconsin because there's so much pasture land? It's huge, Kent. And the reason for it is that, to your point, when the cows came in and we created a cattle and dairy type you know, agrarian environment sure. here, we did plant a lot of non-native Eurasian cool season grasses, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Timothy, brome, fescue, yeah. rye, you name it. Um, those grasses tend to become a monoculture, mm-hmm. and they're great for wild for cattle forage, yep. but not so great for biodiversity, right? Why are they better for cattle forage than uh, than native cool season or warm season grasses? So C three, you know, it has to do with C three versus C four grasses. 
C3, it's a photosynthetic process and cycle. Those grasses green up twice a year, right? They get, they get a green up in the spring and in the fall, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they hold a lot of nutrient value above ground for cattle. Mm. Uh, but yeah, they don't, but they, they become the above, monotypic. The above ground nutrition versus below. Absolutely. That's a They're great not point. great for soil. They're not great for building soil organics and tilth and soil health. Right. Um, but they're rapidly establishing. They, they recover quickly. That's also true. Yeah, you can get that stuff growing fast. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. That, that's a thing with, with – so we've had people start reaching out because we've had such a drought in Iowa. They say, hey, our cool season grasses are withering up. We don't have anything. We want to put warm season grasses out there. And, that, and that's great. So we've actually had a market for that. The problem is then you have to tell them, hey, you can't pl- – you not can't prob- have cattle here for not, two years. Not a problem, a challenge. A challenge, yeah. Right. Yeah, a hurdle. <laughs> a hurdle. And, and many yeah. of them are, they're such a, a native mindset. They're like, I don't care. We'll make it happen. Yeah. Um, but uh, that, that is, especially the green up twice a year, that, that's a big deal for them. Yeah. But Kent, what you were alluding to with fire is really, really uh, applicable because, so Eurasian non-native cool season grasses are not a fire adapted plant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they don't do well yeah. with fire. It doesn't necessarily kill them, but it can suppress their development, mm-hmm. and it can tip the scales in the favor of native vegetation. Sure. And when so one of, the, one of the tools that we do use is, is fire to try to reestablish native, native seed remnant vegetation, whether it's warm season grass-dominated systems or a savanna that you know, it, is it really, really fire dependent plant community? Yeah. When Absolutely. would you recommend people burn for people that are curious about doing this? Well, we burn in, in, in Southern Wisconsin. Our primary season right now is, is April, but it's a great question because actually that's changing. People are starting to use growing season burns, mm-hmm. you know, and it was kind of an experiment. People thought it was kind of crazy to think about burning in July and August, but huh. people are doing that now. And, uh, and, it, and it does suppress cool season grasses to a certain degree. But fall, probably October, November, is our other window in Wisconsin to burn. It's a little bit of a more narrow window, right? Because you've got a shorter photo period. You've got more moisture in the ground. It's a little bit harder to get fire to go. So most people right now still burn in the month of April. And right now, you, this is it. What are you looking for on the plant when you say, okay, now's the perfect time to burn? Well, it has to do with fuel moisture conditions, for one. So when you're burning you know, remnant grasslands or, or reconstructed prairie, you're burning at the time of the year when those plants are still dormant. Mm. So you're burning residual growth from the previous season yeah. in April, right, or spring. Um, and you can still get a hot enough fire if you have enough, you know, a lower relative humidity uh, and, and the sun is out. And we can actually get a good kill on woody vegetation that tends to encroach in grasslands. Mm. So that's kind of the big, those are the, those are the two big objectives that we do with fire. Reinvigorate the native season, the native grassland component and forbs, the wildflowers, yeah. and suppress woody vegetation at the same time. You guys remember at the beginning of the podcast when I told you that Clay sounds like an expert? If he's not, then he's the best actor I've ever met in my <laughs> life. Because my goodness, this is awesome this is i get asked this all the time hey when's the best time to burn for this or that and and a lot of it's like hey it depends on Um, your objective right? yeah exactly exactly so this this is great to know because i only i know one guy he called us and said hey i think i have a remnant what do i do about it 
and he had just, I think, two or three years in a row burned the brome back. And all of a sudden, he start in this old pasture. He start getting little blue stem, big blue stem Indian grass that wasn't there at all. You know, four years ago. Yep, um, that was really cool. cool. Why don't you tell me about that guy? That's interesting. I can't remember his name, and I can't find the notebook that I had his information written in. I've tried to find it before, but yeah, no, that's gotta cool. keep better notes, Nicholas. Well, I know, and, I know. And if you're listening in, and you do have, you know, an old cow pasture that you're pretty well certain has never been tilled or uh, even sprayed real heavily, I mean, and even still, a seed bank can survive spray. So. Uh, if you just the big thing is if it wasn't tilled, um, go ahead and put some fire to it safely, and uh, you know get get see what comes up because you could very well end up having a uh, remnant prairie. And I I am suspicious that there is so I like to do a lot of shed hunting in the spring. So I I go around and I ask people for permission everywhere if I can go check out their their land see if I'm finding antlers. World's and best asker. That's right. Actually, that's my good friend Caleb. Shout out to Caleb Drake. Uh, the the thing that I end up in a lot of times though is these old cow pastures, and I just can't help but think if this was all burned off, we would probably see a lot of acres yeah. of remnant prairie come back. And uh, right now in Iowa, we we have approximately one tenth of a percent of our original prairie uh, left. And so I would I would think that that number would dramatically increase if we burned off every pasture just to see what's still there. It's really yeah. interesting, you know, like um, we, we've only been on this, on this continent really as European settlers for a couple hundred years. Yeah, yeah. And there was a huge history of fire here, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yep. a long, long indigenous use history of fire. Um, that went back 10,000 years. Yeah. Mm. And, and, and all of a sudden, it just abruptly stopped. Yeah. And, you know, there's plenty of folks that are trying to bring that back, but it's really, really isolated and patchy, and we're trying to do the best that we can. I'm actually an officer. I should give a plug to the Wisconsin Prescribed Fire Council. Yeah. I've been involved with, as an officer for about 10 years with them, and just a great group of people doing great work trying to really advocate for as much fire on the landscape as possible in our state right now in yeah. any capacity possible as long yeah. as it's safe good fire you know that's what we're pushing right now sure. it's a big deal yeah, yeah that's great that's great now uh nick you're supposed to be hosting this but i have i gotta ask yeah yeah, yeah. nick advertised something about you're an expert with beavers Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I actually can't remember who was talking to me about it. I know there was a gentleman at your booth named something Boucher. Bob. Bob Boucher. Bob Boucher. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Spelled Boucher. Wow. Uh, he probably got the jokes way harder than I did. Bobby. The, yeah. That's right. Everyone's favorite water boy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bob Boucher, I feel you, brother. My last name <laughs> is spelled the same way. Every <laughs> basketball game, every football game. You can do it, yeah. Bobby Boucher. Well, here's the story on the beaver, guys. I mean, so as a wildlife guy in school, everybody gets the standard assay of beaver biology and beaver behavior and, and even to a certain degree uh, a, a sampling of what beaver's impacts are on the landscape from a positive standpoint, right? But then you kind of shelve that and you go into you work for an agency, you work for yourself, you work for nonprofits or private sector industry and uh, what you realize is that 
there's a huge movement by most game management agencies in the U.S. to consider beaver as a nuisance wildlife, right? Yeah. As a nuisance wildlife species. Yeah. And, and they, they really, they don't outwardly talk about eradication, but they, for the most part, and this is state and federal agencies, they just don't have the vehicle and the process and the culture to press the idea that beaver do some really good things for yeah. us on the, on the landscape. Yep. From a watershed standpoint, from a water quality standpoint, from a wildlife habitat standpoint. You told me something about birds. Is that a thing? Beavers help birds? They do. Well, shorebirds, waterfowl. I mean, beaver create incredible wa- waterfowl yeah. habitat. Yeah. Right? Keystone species. Think about it. Absolutely. And so what that means, Kent, keystone species are essentially a wildlife species that, that, that support and foster a whole host of other wildlife species yep. and plant species, by the way, yeah. right? Yep. What beaver do in the landscape are, is remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, <laughs> so my story on it is relatively recent. Now, I'm not a beaver expert. I shouldn't. I, I don't want to frame myself as that. <laughs> He's a beaver. I'm beaverologist. a beaver believer. <laughs> I am a beaver believer. Let's oh, put it that no. way, right? We're going to have to shut down this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've gone into the, the, the dark side. Now, yeah, right? we're here. We're here. <laughs> right. So, you know, about a year ago, I had the opportunity to go to a beaver conference in Baltimore, Maryland with Bob Boucher. Uh, we flew out together, and it was called BeaverCon. Awesome. And, and I was really skeptical, right? I mean, yeah. because I, I had done some research again. Like, I understand what beavers do. But this was an absolute collection of the most passionate and intelligent and uh, well-thought people on this critter that I had ever witnessed in my life. Mm-hmm. And it changed me. It, wow. it, it, it made me rethink the whole idea of how we manage beavers. I started reading more on them, and I got involved with the Beaver Institute. You know, uh, Mike Callahan. Uh, from Massachusetts is the guy that runs the Beaver Institute. And within that, he created the Beaver Corps, which the Beaver Corps is a training protocol for people to learn how to help others coexist with beaver. Hmm. Right? Okay. So, so mostly it, targeted at landowners and things like is. that? Okay. That's right, Nicholas. So what we're doing is we're working with private landowners um, to put in flow devices, pond leveler structures, culvert protection devices, Beaver Dam analogs, BDAs, to try to really, it's a nature process, nature-based solution to put these things back in the landscape that were already there a long time before we got there. And it's cheap compared to heavy diesel, you know, really impactful, a lot of soil disturbance type wetland restoration, which is generally what's still done. On a stream restoration or wetland restoration standpoint, we fire up the diesel equipment and we start moving dirt. And there's there's process behind that, and there's thought oh, behind yeah. that generally, yeah, but yeah. it's expensive, and it has a negative impact, and it creates uh, a, a maintenance situation for the landowner too to right, follow right, up right. on those things, right? So, long story short, <laughs> Beaver Corps is a is a vehicle for people like me to go out and work with landowners to put these devices in, and we're permitting these things in Wisconsin right now. We're pushing this through. It's an uphill battle because the DNR doesn't really have a vehicle to permit some of these things right now. So we're working through this one project at a time. 
and it's not paying the bills right now. Let me tell you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. We got a ways to go. Yeah. But it, it's 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 there. It's on the horizon. So we're gonna start a fund. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna start a fund for Clay. Uh, we're gonna pay him. Uh, we're gonna collectively get the public to pay you to live with the Beavers. You're gonna be the Jane Goodall oh of my. Beavers. You're gonna live with yeah. them. You're gonna be part of their family. You're gonna you're gonna come back and teach us all their their beaver. My wife beaver might ways. have something to say about that. <laughs> she can join you. <laughs> right. right. I just imagine you know like Jane Goodall. We just saw a sign uh, in for her somewhere here in Madison uh, or somewhere here in Wisconsin today, and um, it got me thinking about all the different like. Imagine someone and just going and living with coyotes, you know. Or just well, like, I was going like to say, it's a good thing he said Jane Goodall, not Timothy Treadwell, right? <laughs> the, guy, oh, no. the guy who uh, right. got videotaped getting eaten by the bears he was living with. Oh, that's not goodness. good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Oh, guys, guys. Uh, okay, sorry, we were way off topic. So you, you were at, um, you got a job. For the DNR at this point, sure, you're working under it was Ben, was his Brian name? Benzo, Brian Benzo, yeah, yeah, and, uh, and and so you start having this passion for prairie uh, and and other uh, native flora and fauna. How how does that get you all the way to where you started your own? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I spent I spent a um, I think four and a half really amazing years working for Pheasants Forever. And you mm. guys are really close to the organization. Yeah, you know I love that place. So many people inside and outside PF, yeah. right? Um, it, that was another just amazing time in my life. I essentially ran, I was allowed to run a small business, and all I did was plant prairie and burn stuff. Wow. Right? And, and I was really, really passionate about it, and, and it became a little incubator business. And... Uh, I my 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 boss, <laughs> who's since retired, Matt O'Connor. He was with with Pheasants Forever for oh, thirty yeah. plus years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? He was in Iowa for absolutely. a long time. Absolutely, he was yeah. an Iowa guy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Still lives in Iowa. Oh yeah, I I know Matt. Yep, Matt's a great guy. I mean, and so I had an opportunity to work for Matt, and I only got to, I only saw him a couple of times a year because he left me alone. Right, he huh. didn't really need to bother me that much. I yeah. I was running my 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 business. I was hiring people and renting equipment, leasing equipment. We were going, and we were planting a couple thousand acres a year. And what was That's this? awesome. What was mostly CRP or? Yep. Oh, yeah. In those days, in the mid-2000s, CRP was still king. And was I heard balancing. it was booming. It was booming. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, and, and we were charging a nominal per acre rate to put to put native grassland on the, on the landscape. Every USDA Farm Bill program you can imagine, we were involved with it. Yeah. And I, I hired kids to help me plant. I had several drills going at the same time, and uh, that's awesome. Yeah, and uh, my my chapters that I was involved with, my Pheasants River chapters, supported me really, really well. That's cool. Uh, helping buy drill, you know, we go up to Truex and buy drills. We go out and uh, buy Jim. trucks and trailers. You know, Jim. Oh, absolutely. Man, what yep. a guy! Yeah, I, really I bought like a Jim. few drills from Jim Truex. Yeah, yep. yeah. Because we build for we build frames for drills because we do like drop seeders and harrows on the back. But dad designed this thing where you get a second set of wheels on it so you can pull it down the highway. Yep. Um, but so we have, we've worked out a deal with Jim. So we get Truax drill boxes and then set them on our right. own frames. But yeah, yeah, he's a cool dude. He is a cool guy. Yeah, they're, they're a neat company. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we, we were doing that for a, for a few years. And, but, of course, at that point in time, I, my kids came along. 
and you know it, it wasn't paying the bills anymore. I mean, the mm. model was you're not you're not making a lot of money. You're working yeah. a few months of the year if you're kind doing a, it right. Kind of a passion. Project. Yeah, and then you go out and hunting a little bit, and you're driving around the cool yeah. truck with the Pheasants Forever logo on it. You yeah. know, yeah. And uh, at, the, at, at the peak of it, there were seven of us in Wisconsin doing that same work. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and then we would converge. That was the Habitat Teams program. We would converge and burn. Uh, you know, as a, as a as a solid crew for for like a month or so, six weeks out of the year, and huh. we go back after that and do our own thing. So you weren't you were part of Pheasants Forever, but you weren't like technically on their payroll. You I was on the payroll, but I was, it was an employee. <laughs> it, yeah. But it was according to how many acres you went out. No, and, and no, it, I didn't get paid on commission on oh, the okay, acres. Okay, I okay. No, I, that was just my personal drive, Nick. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. I I was into it, and and that carried over into my private sector career. I just wanted to see. How many acres could I put in? How many people could I talk to? How many connect- contacts and connections could I make? Yeah. How many hearts and minds could I change, right? Yeah. And, and, and I deal. got into it at that point. And that segued into a private sector career as a consultant. Yeah. Yeah. Which around 2008, I went to work for a company called EC3 that was just starting out at that time. Great company. Whole bunch of guys that came actually from Pheasants Forever yeah. as biologists knew all about grassland management and we were doing it that's and i was with those guys for four or five years jumped into a different company um tried to buy that company out that didn't work and started native range just six months ago man and i turned 50 last month so it's kind of really yeah right so i'm kind of like you know not that that's a big deal but it's a renaissance moment to a certain degree right it's kind of like hey Wow, like, what am I doing right now? Yeah. I'm working my butt off. I'm working these hours. I want to do this for me now. Yeah. Last 15 years of my career, hopefully. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Like, I want to just press hard, do it right, make some money, and then yeah, right off. That's Man, it. Man, that is really cool. So yeah. you've been getting – your experience is crazy. So went to school. Went to the Peace Corps, traveled around Europe, got married, and and uh, something we don't uh, we don't highlight very much, uh, the amount you learn uh, just in life and how to do life well from being a parent is a lot. Uh, so you've got kids, you work for the DNR, right, and you have uh, and you have a lot of freedom. You work for Pheasants Forever, you have a lot of freedom. And then you work for another company that does something similar to what you do now. Um, and then just decided to part ways um, and start your own business. So, so you deal with, with natives, you deal with prairie. What in the world do you, like, what, what do you encompass? Do you just plant CRP or, or what kinds of things do you, uh, do you and, and Dan, your, your co-founder, what do you guys do with the? Yeah, so Native Range has become pretty diverse, and, and really in the last decade or so of my career, it's really gone, I mean, way beyond just prairie restoration. But, it, but the native vegetation part of it is still a foundational component, right? Um, and so we work a lot on Lake Michigan bluff restoration projects using native vegetation. We, do, we were talking earlier about stormwater management stuff that we do with native plantings. Um, we do... Uh, a lot of uh, uh, grassland management where we're managing remnant populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of it is just assessments 
what we call we kind of call them phase one assessments where we go in and we do a lot of inventory work on soils mm. and hydrology and vegetation yeah. we write a, a report we develop management plans and then right now and this is the way we're hoping to keep it for a while we have a really amazing network of partners that are really skilled people okay. engineers and erosion control people people that do hydro seeding people that do native installations People that do invasive species management on every level you can imagine, on every landscape you can imagine. And we plug them in, either as subcontractors or as direct referrals to landowners. So, and, then, and then we come in and do the, the monitoring and the reporting and the oversight of, that, of those projects. So awesome. first and foremost, you do some hardcore consulting on basically anything native. And what, where's your range? We're working in five states right now. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So Iowa, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, North Dakota. Uh, yeah, that's it. Wow, right there. That's crazy. Yeah. So we we work in every state touching Iowa, and then we ship a lot of garden stuff to Ohio and Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is when someone says like, "Oh yeah, we're in several different states." That's like a lot. That's a lot of logistics. So we actually work with a lot of contractors in other states mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But when you're so you do like hefty consulting and then you let uh, you let them know like different options of directions they can go and, and how they would go. there. Uh, I have a question for you. There's a guy. Um, I forget his company's name. I, his name's Luke Grant. He's a really awesome guy in uh, north central Iowa. He does prairie and he does he's very expensive and he is very very good yeah he's very is, is that what where you guys would kind of fall is like hey uh, like people who are shy on price it's probably not going to pay for a service to get your soil tested to get all these things or yeah you know honestly the price part of it kind of comes with time because the more that you dig into all of this the more technical you get with what you want to do for people. Yeah. We do some pretty like low-level things on occasion where we get plugged in, right? But at the same time, um, we get plugged in by other companies and consultants that want higher-end work, yeah. right? Um, we do charge a premium for our services next yeah. month. Good. We don't apologize for it. Good. And not everybody is going to be our client. Not everybody wants to pay the, the fees that we're charging. And I understand that. I respect that. Yeah. I don't. I don't hold any ill will for people that don't sure. want to pay those fees. Some of them can't, and some of them just don't want to. Yeah. And there's everything in between, and that's okay, right? Right. Uh, we're busy enough that we're working for people that really want to dial in their lands, uh, or they have to, because they're kind of in trouble, and we get called in to to bail them out a little bit from a permitting standpoint. Yeah. From a regulatory standpoint, so. Yeah. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of hours. Yeah. Right. And I've made my living on the billable hour for the last 15 years of my life. So it's, it's, it's fairly straightforward for us. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So so you're pretty experienced being able to quote things out right at the beginning. Like, I kind of have an understanding of, man, that is really here again. Here's the thing with Clay and Dan, you guys have heard a, a snippet of Clay tonight. They know what they're talking about. There aren't, I mean, there's a handful of people in the Midwest that know more about what they're talking about in their field than Clay and Dan. So, uh, 
I, I mean, I, I, I'm thinking like six, seven, eight questions right off the top of my brain. But the restaurant we're at is closing down. Shout out to Alchemy uh, yeah. here in yeah. uh, North Madison for letting us. Uh, it's a great spot. Is yeah, real, is the food here food. was really good. Very good. Great service. Yeah. Big, big shout out to them. We got to get Clay back on. But Clay, before uh, we close this out. Uh, can you promote like how people can track you guys down and get in touch with you? Yeah, so Native Range Ecological, you can find us at uh, nativerange.net. And, uh, uh, you know, we've got a pretty basic website right now, but pretty good LinkedIn and Facebook coverage. And, and that's kind of – I get passionate about that. I get yeah. up in the oh, morning yeah. and yep. check it and add to it, right, yeah. and like yep. stuff and promote things there. But, but yeah, we're, we're out there, Native Range Ecological. Um, I'm in Madison, and my my business partner Dan Foos is in the La Crosse, Wisconsin area. So we're we're That's going. Really cool. Awesome. So yeah. The thing awesome. if you're if you're gonna pay them, here's what you're getting: you're getting their brains and you're getting their elbow grease, and that is yeah. is, is what's really cool. Yeah. So um, really quick, because they are turning on the lights, they're ready to go. If you could snap your finger and change one thing about the Wisconsin landscape, what would you change? Oh, man, that's a big question. Holy goodness. Yeah, Nick, man. <laughs> you got 10 seconds. About the Wisconsin <laughs> landscape. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that, you know, people, people are becoming more aware of, of where their food comes all the time, yeah. of where water quality, what the base of that is. I think if people can trace that back, they can become educated um, on those things. I think they'll become sharper and better consumers yeah. and more informed human beings across mm. the board. And it leads to just an understanding about yeah. ecological restoration in general. I love that. Right? People pay attention to what you're consuming and where it comes from. Right. It is a huge deal. It helps in all efforts of conservation. But we can't have that without you and your knowledge. So conservation must happen one mind at a time.